but is going to be very, I think, effective in helping us to understand more and more of what was happening there as Jesus came into Jerusalem. As I welcome all of you who are here together with me in the room, welcome also to those who are watching online or on the Moon Campus or in, in the classic venue as well. Good to be together. I wonder if you would describe yourself as being a resolute person. Resolute person. Are you one who lives with intentionality and who lives with great purpose and one who is driven? I know about one Pennsylvania student who is exactly that, was described as being very resolute by all of his teachers. He recently, not, or not long ago, graduated with honors from high school and has now completed most all of his first year of college. And you might say, well, there are a lot of kids like that. And yeah, but the difference in this particular case with David Bass is that he is nine. He's nine, and he has just recently graduated with honors from high school and is almost done with his first year of college. That is pretty amazing. He's a member of Mensa already, and as well as pursuing his black belt in karate, playing basketball, mastering the piano, and he writes computer code. He's probably going to have his first PhD before he's allowed to drive. <laughs> he actually kind of reminds me of myself. I played basketball too. <laughs> and that's pretty much where the, the similarities end, right? All right, well, interesting kid to be sure. It would be interesting to follow his, his life along the way. Today we're going to take a look at somebody else, another person, who lives with intentionality and who lives a very purposeful life and is certainly very much driven. And today, the one we're going to take a look at is the resolute Jesus. The resolute Jesus, he very much knows exactly what he's about. He knows what he is seeking to accomplish and we see that very plainly as we come into the text we're looking at today. And that text is Mark chapter 11, beginning in verse one. Mark chapter 11, beginning in verse one. And take your scripture journals and open up to Mark chapter 11. Now even as I tell you to do that, you might be like, whoa, 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 whoa. Hold on a second. Last week we were in Mark chapter six and we've just kind of been walking our way through it just step by step. All of a sudden, we're in Mark chapter 11. Yes, we're in Mark chapter 11 today, and the reason is we're skipping forward so that we might get to Mark's account of the triumphal entry of Jesus, the things related to that very first Palm Sunday. Because I wanna show this to you from Mark's perspective. You already have some of Mark's perspective as we've been making our way along, if you've been with us, well, this gives us the opportunity to see what he has to say on this particular topic, which I think is helpful. Now, it's actually a pretty significant transition point in the book of Mark. The first 10 chapters of the book of Mark, and we're kind of in the middle of those, the first 10 chapters cover the first three years, or the, essentially most all, of the ministry of Jesus. Chapters 11 to 16, just the last third of the book or so, cover one week. Starts with the triumphal entry of Jesus into Jerusalem, Palm Sunday essentially, and it ends with the resurrection. So it's a very big change in the movement of the book as we get here, but as you'll see, there's still a lot that is going on and we're going to go ahead and dig into that together with one another. Here we see the resolute Jesus and we see that he's working to accomplish a very clear purpose and the whole, the whole section gets started off just really nice and, and things look really beautiful and great and but we're gonna see it takes a pretty dramatic turn and pretty quickly as we get into this and we're gonna take a look at the events of the first 
for Palm Sunday and the next day or two that come right after that. And as we take a look at the resolute Jesus, there are some things that we see about him, that we see about his purposes. We see what he is all about. And the first of those things having to do with the resolute Jesus is this, that he receives the people's praise for your outline. He receives the people's praise. Mark 11 begins with what we call the triumphal entry of Jesus. And Mark sets the stage for us by giving us some detail. Beginning in verse 1, chapter 11, take a look at it. It says this, Now, when they drew near to Jerusalem, to Bethphage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately as you enter it, you will find a colt tied, on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. If anyone says to you, why are you doing this? Say, the Lord has need of it, and we'll set it back here immediately. And they went away and found a colt tied at the door outside in the street, and they untied it. And some of those standing there said to him, what are you doing untying the colt? And they told them what Jesus had said, and they let them go. Now, as we have been following Jesus' ministry up to at least into chapter six, what we have seen is virtually all of the ministry that he has been doing is happening right around the Sea of Galilee. The sea that you can see, just a little blue speck up there kind of near the top of that map. The Sea of Galilee, it's been on different sides of the Sea of Galilee we saw, but it's pretty much been centered right here. Well, for this text, all of a sudden we're down to the south, nearer the bigger body of water down there, which is the Dead Sea. Specifically, it says in the text that this is a city called Bethphage and another called Bethany, the first of which was about a mile to the east of Jerusalem. The other, Bethany, was a couple of miles to the east of Jerusalem. And right here along this thing called the Mount of Olives. And uh, it's just a, it's kind of a tall hill. It's about 2,900 feet, which is bigger than it might seem because the Dead Sea is actually about 700 feet below sea level. So it's this rather large hill that just rises up between the Dead Sea and Jerusalem. And this is the place where this is happening. This Bethphage is where this colt is going to be found, just to the east of Jerusalem, to give you a little bit of an idea of where this is going on. And it seems pretty clear from this account that Jesus has already made some prearrangements for this colt. And it might be that it was on a previous trip that he took into Jerusalem, that he made arrangements with the owner of this colt. It's not uh, that he didn't know that it was coming. He knew it was coming. In fact, all of Israel knew that this day was coming. In fact, 500 years before, the prophet Zechariah actually wrote this particular prophecy. He wrote, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a coat, the foal of a donkey. So what's happening here is that this ancient prophecy is being fulfilled right before their eyes. It was written 500 years earlier and now this is starting to unfold. It's just the beginning of a week where all sorts of prophecies are going to be fulfilled. And Mark tells us a bit about it from his perspective here in verse 7, chapter 11. He goes on, talks about the account or gives us account of the fulfillment. It says, and they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks on it. And he sat on it. And many spread their cloaks on the road, and others spread leafy branches that they had cut from the fields. And those who went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. So here we have Jesus. He is riding into town on this donkey. And it's like, this doesn't quite seem right. 
that he's riding on a donkey, right? I mean, Batman had the Batmobile. Han Solo had the Millennium Falcon. The Lone Ranger even had silver, his great white stallion. Give any one of those a donkey and it ruins the movie, right? Don't you think? But here's Jesus riding into town on a donkey. And on the one hand, it just doesn't seem right because Jesus is this this man with authority and with power and he comes from God the Father and he is God himself. So it's like it doesn't seem right that he would be on this donkey, although it does seem fitting in another way because Jesus comes as a humble servant. He doesn't come to promote himself. He comes to promote the will and the purposes of the Father and he essentially takes a back seat, even as one who has such authority. And so riding on a donkey in many respects seems exactly right. Though it's also interesting that right here in this very same text is really going to be the first time when Jesus turns a corner and he actually starts to accept praise. He starts to acknowledge the fact that yes, indeed, he is God that was widely known and he he acknowledged that previously. But here he's about to go to the cross And as one who is going to go to the cross as as a substitutionary sacrifice for all mankind, it's important that everybody would understand that he is God so that as he goes to the cross, he would be an appropriate representative for all of us. So as he comes in, what is very uncharacteristic as he receives this praise, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Those words are being borrowed from Psalm 118. It's a pretty significant messianic psalm that talks about Jesus, that talks about his entering in, though the people wouldn't have recognized or didn't recognize the significance of what they were saying. They're shouting Hosanna, which means save us now. And that's what they desired, but there was a particular kind of saving that they desired. And we've talked about this many, many times before, the fact that they are looking for one who is going to come and save them militarily. Someone who is going to come and help them to defeat all of their Roman oppressors. That's not why Jesus came. Jesus came to bring peace. And as they look on what Jesus is doing, they come to recognize that their expectations are not going to be fulfilled. And that turns them, starts to turn them again Jesus. So here at the beginning of the week, They're shouting their hosannas, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. By the end of the week, those shouts are going to turn to crucify him. What made the difference? Expectation. They were expecting one thing. They wanted Jesus to be one thing. And if he wasn't going to be that for them, serving their soul interests and purposes, then they didn't want anything to do with him. And the truth of the matter is we, we can also fall into that same trap because we can also make Jesus into something that uh, we want to have happen. We have our own expectations for who he'll be for us, for what he'll accomplish for us, for the problems that he'll get us out of, for the ways that he'll rescue us from our circumstances. And if we get to the place where he doesn't fulfill our expectations, to come and provide for us to make our lives better, safer, more enjoyable, then we can also turn our backs. You're probably not going to shout crucify him, but the fact that he might not be completely fulfilling your expectations might cause you to dismiss him just the same, to not live into the desires that he has for you, to not fully enter in, to not fully give yourself over to his purposes. 
And if that's where you find yourself today, kind of living your, your own way, doing your own thing, it might very well be that, is that he's let you down on some of your expectations. Maybe that we're still trying to turn him in that direction, but God has an agenda of his own. We call it his perfect will, and it is just that. It's, it's perfect. He has a perfect plan for us. He has our best interests in mind, and we need to be sure to examine our wants and our expectations to make sure that we're allowing God to be God, not requiring God to be a slave to our desires. If we're really going to serve him, if we're really going to give ourselves fully to him, that he's going to have to come through for us so that we might respond accordingly. So Jesus' prayed comes down the hillside of the Mount of Olives, down there toward the valley that's right before Jerusalem, that's right before the Temple Mount. And eventually it ends up at the temple, verse 11. And he entered Jerusalem and went into the temple. And when he had looked around at everything, as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. Now think about this for a moment. You have this parade that has started and Jesus is there and people are throwing their cloaks on the road and their palm branches and, and they're celebrating Jesus coming down the road and now they get to the temple and it's like the whole thing fizzled out. It's like you would expect a celebration when you get to the end of the route, right? Or maybe a coronation or at least a speech. We don't have any of that. Mark just tells us that they got there and Jesus looked around in the temple and then he left. And he goes back to Bethany, which is where some of his friends live. Remember Mary and Martha, Lazarus? Back in Bethany, probably stayed at their house for all we know. Left town, went there. But he looked around, which is going to be instructive for what happens the next morning. The resolute Jesus has things in mind that he wants to accomplish. The first is that he receives the people's praise. The second, which is very telling here, is that he condemns the status quo. When Jesus came into Jerusalem the night before, Palm Sunday evening, he just looked around. He didn't say anything, didn't do anything that the text reports for us, but he did make some observations. And we're going to see what he was observing as the text then goes on. Verse 12. On the following day, this is the morning after Palm Sunday evening, when they came from Bethany, where he was staying, he was hungry. And seeing in the distance a fig tree and leaf, he went to see if he could find anything on it. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. And he said to it, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard it. Now, this is a pretty puzzling miracle that Jesus does here. It looks like Jesus is selfishly hungry, and this tree isn't going to provide for him, so kind of like throw, throws a little temper tantrum and just curses the tree. Says, well, if you're not going to feed me now, you're never going to feed anybody anywhere, and he, and, he, and he just trashes the tree. That doesn't sound very Jesus-like, does it? So what's going on here? Well, it's helpful to understand a little bit about fig trees. About this time of year, Passover time of year, there would be little buds on the fig trees along with larger green leaves. Those would coexist for a little while and about a month later, those little buds would fall off and they'd be replaced by the full fruit, by the full fig that would be on the tree. And so at this time of year, you would expect that there would be both buds and leaves. But Jesus, seeing that there are no buds, 
recognizes the fact that there's not going to be a product, there's not going to be, you know, the produce either. The fig tree is not going to produce any figs in this particular season. And at this point, there should have been these buds. So the leaves gave the appearance that everything was great when there really wasn't going to be any fruit that was going to be produced. This was just an acted out parable, basically, that is going on right here. By cursing the fig tree, Jesus is showing his anger at religion that doesn't have any substance behind it. Just as the fig tree looked good from a distance, but it's fruitless upon examination, so it is with Israel. So it is with what's going on there in the temple. It looks good from a distance. It actually gleamed there in the sunlight. It looked pretty spectacular. But the worship was going on there, or that was going on there, was not worship. It was empty. It was hollow. It was manufactured. It was meaningless. So Jesus acts out this parable with the disciples, and then he goes on to demonstrate the real thing that really stands behind the parable. Verse 15 says, And they came to Jerusalem. And he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. And he overturned the table of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. And he was teaching them and saying to them, it is, is it not written, my house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations? But you have made it a den of robbers. And the chief priests and the scribes heard it and were seeking a way to destroy him, for they feared him, because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. And when evening came, they went out of the city. So why is Jesus so upset with what he sees going on there in the temple. Well, during Passover, worshipers would come to Jerusalem from all sorts of people, all sorts of places out and around Judea and beyond. And so they're all flooding into Jerusalem. And ancient history books tell us that the city would swell to several times its normal population during Passover. So all of these people are coming, and God told them all in the law to bring along with them an animal for sacrifice. And so that's what they were supposed to do, but by by this point, not all of them were bringing it any longer. It was a lot easier since they had now in the temple set up this place where you could just go and you could just buy a sacrificial animal. You didn't have to bring your own along anymore, which is what God had originally asked them to do. And on top of that, what was happening is that those who did bring their animals, the priests there in the temple would find something wrong with the animal so that they wouldn't be able to use that for the sacrifice, some blemish, so that instead they would have to buy one of the animals from the priests there in the temple, which were being sold at exorbitant prices. They were being sold at these big markups, inflated prices. And they didn't have any choice. They just had to go with what was available so that they could be worshipers there. They were just kind of behind the eight ball in this regard. You ever been there? You've kind of been somewhere where you need something and, and there's just one option and it's an inflated price, but you just got to pay it? I'm guessing you've probably been somewhere like that. I was recently somewhere like that. Just a few weeks ago, uh, I had the opportunity to run the Tokyo Marathon and it was kind of the fulfillment of a, of a major goal that I've had for a while and so it was 
pretty awesome to be able to go and do that. I'd love to talk to you more about that sometime. But it was pretty cool. And while we're there, of course, you want to see a few other things that are going on around. And so we went and we visited some sites. One of them, the next day that we went to, is actually this track that we ended up taking up a mountain. We didn't know it was a mountain to begin with. We just knew it, knew it was this site and everybody goes and sees it. And so we went and, and we were starting to walk around. And pretty soon there's some steps and we start to climb steps. And then there are more steps. We, we didn't know it at the time. We read about it afterwards that this site had some 12,000 steps. Now, I don't think we took all 12,000, but we did climb all the way to the top of this mountain. And because we didn't know it was as significant as it was, we didn't take enough water along with us. So now we're thirsty. We get up to the top and it's like we need something to drink. And there was someone selling water there for $8 a bottle. That's like an 8,000% markup on the water. But it's like the only place that we could buy any water. So you know what we did? We chose dehydration. <laughs> it's like, I am not paying $8 for a bottle of water. So we just kind of managed our way back down the mountain and we finally got something else. But it was the only option if we wanted to buy anything. Or I also have read recently that the average markup on a pizza in America is like 636%. That means that your $20 pizza actually costs the pizza people just a little over $3 to make. It kind of makes you want to stop eating pizza. Not. <laughs> I'm not going to stop eating pizza even at 636% increase. All right, We have that option, I guess, but these people didn't, these poor worshipers. This is extortion, and, and Jesus sees what's happening to these people who are just coming to worship and the poor are being oppressed and being taken advantage of. And Jesus is furious about the whole thing. And that's only one piece. Also, for the money changers, they had this uh, big business going on at Passover. See, worshipers from these other places would come into Jerusalem and they would have to have their money changed into the local currency in order to pay the required temple tax, a half-shekel tax. And so they had to get the local currency and in order to change the money, they were being swindled. They were giving a, given a horrible exchange rate. And so then the people, the priests, essentially were lining their pockets with all the money that they were making off of these poor people. Usually when you end up working with a foreign currency, you do end up losing just a bit in that. In fact, we saw that when we were on our trip also. We were actually in an airport, and there was, much to our surprise, there was a Dairy Queen in the airport. And we'd had access to plenty of sushi, but no ice cream. And so like, yeah, we're going to have an ice cream cone. And so we went ahead and we ordered it and we wanted to give a, a tip to the, the gal who was working the counter. There's just one lady who was serving everybody. So I'll say, yeah, let's give her a tip. And so Carolyn reached into her wallet to pull out, uh, you know, a few dollars in the local currency to give to her. But in our haste to do so, we were kind of late getting to the gate. She actually pulled out a different currency from a different country and put it in only later to realize that she had just given about a $60 tip for this ice cream cone. <laughs> Worked out pretty well for the DQ worker, right? Yeah, absolutely. But it's not working out so well here 
in front of these poor people in the temple because they're being taken advantage of. This is extortion. And again, what Jesus' desire is is that these people would have the opportunity to simply come and worship genuinely, but they're being taken advantage of, and he doesn't, so he clears them all out. He kicks them all out. Now, needless to say, that got people's attention. He said that the temple was to be a house of prayer there in our text, but it's being desecrated. In fact, Mark also mentions, he says, it's to be a house of prayer for all nations. This is so important because Jesus here is opening up the way for all nations, for Gentiles to come and worship as well. And the Jews controlling the temple didn't want anything to do with that. And Mark specifically mentions this for us because who's Mark's audience? It's the Romans, it's Gentiles, it's the Greeks. And he wants them to know, Mark wants them to know that God is for them. God is for them to have a sanctified place where they can worship and that's not what is happening. And that's why Jesus is so angry at Israel, at the priests, for what's going on. And these practices that were going on in the temple, they're not things that just sprung up overnight. These are things that have been going on now for quite a while. In fact, this is just sort of status quo for how things operate. And everybody expected when they came into town that this is just the way that it's going to be because it always has been. It's just a status quo for everybody except Jesus. Jesus is like, no, it is not going to work this way. He immediately saw it as the abomination that it was and he took action. He condemns the status quo that is happening here. Now, here's the thing. This can be really convicting. This particular passage, I think it's really very sobering. See, our inclination is to look at a passage like this and feel indignant, like Jesus does, toward these people who are taking advantage of others. That's where we see ourselves. We align ourselves with the perspective of Jesus. We're, we're the good guys who are upset at those other people. After all, I mean, we're not extorting anybody. And that might be true, but it is possible that we've fallen into a pattern or two where our expression of worship and devotion isn't actually all that worshipful and isn't all that devout as we enter in. Do you ever feel like your spiritual walk is essentially all leaves and no fruit? Have those circumstances where what would you point to in your life to demonstrate the fact that it's more fruit than leaves? It's, it's the actual substance. It's not just that it looks good. Because we've learned very well how to make it look good. We're very good at producing leaves. We're very good at convincing other people that this is who we are. And sometimes we go so far down that road, we start to kind of believe it. And we start to accept the status quo for where we are in our lives, where we are in our worship, where we are in our devotion to God as being something that has a lot more heat than it does. And it's just some light. It's just some leaves. There's no real fruit. Jesus is confronting that idea. If Jesus were to come to your place, to you, what would he find? What substance would he find in the temple of your heart? What would he see going on there? I told you this is convicting and sobering. It's important that we would take a look at this between the leaves to make sure that there is fruit that is being produced through faithful time with God and being in his word and serving others and giving generously and sharing our faith 
and so on. Because we can get trapped, just as Israel has gotten trapped here, in making it look good when the substance is fruitless and empty. So Jesus, the resolute Jesus, who's all about making things right, living with great intentionality, comes and he condemns the status quo. And I'm convicted by that. And I ask myself, what would Jesus find in the temple of my heart? How much of it would just be burned up? Would he be desiring to overturn all sorts of things in my heart? I think it's something worth asking. The resolute Jesus receives the people's praise. He also condemns the status quo. There's one more thing here as well, and that is that he invites an active faith. Mark comes back to the fig tree story in verse 20. He writes, as they passed by in the morning, they saw the fig tree withered away at its roots. And Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed has withered. And Jesus answered them, have faith in God. So another day has now passed. We had Palm Sunday evening. Jesus went in, took a look. Yeah, left, went back to Bethany. Comes in on Monday, takes a look around. The things that he saw the night before upsetting him. He's cursed the tree on the way, upsets the tables of the money changers and all the rest. All of that has just happened on Monday. Now it's Tuesday. He'd been back out to Bethany for another night's sleep. It's Tuesday and he's on his way back. And walking in, Peter notices the tree that Jesus has cursed there. Now it's a big, not a big surprise that it had cursed and had shriveled up because that's what Jesus had done here. But ultimately what we learn in this story is that it's not about the tree. The fig tree is a symbol of the nation of Israel. In fact, you can look at several of the Old Testament prophets and one of their favorite symbols that they use is the fig tree in referring to Israel. Jeremiah does it, Micah does it, Joel does it, Hosea does it. They refer to Israel in this way, and that's essentially what's going on here. This account isn't about the tree being cursed. It's about Israel being cursed because they're not bearing any fruit. That's what Jesus is saying. That's what this is about. So what's the solution we would want to ask? Because Jesus always provides a solution. And he says just very simply here, verse 22, he just says, the answer Have faith in God. Have faith in God. It almost seems too simplistic in in one respect. If you want to avoid the curse of God like Israel is experiencing, he says, have faith in God. If you want your life to be fruitful for the Lord, he says, have faith in God. The reason that faith is so central is because what faith does is it taps us in to the power of God in the first place. It taps us into participating in the work that God is doing instead of finding ourselves over in our own status quo doing our own thing. 
It taps us into what he's doing. You might remember last week, if you were with us, that we spent quite a bit of time talking about this idea of faith and how so often what we see faith to be is this idea that we want to just sort of spin it up and and deepen some pool of faith that gets deep enough finally that we're willing to go ahead and step out when really what's happening is we're simply bolstering enough courage to go off and do our own thing. And actually what we oftentimes have considered to be faith is actually a lack of faith or it's a choice to live by selfishness and self-righteousness rather than to rest in the work that only God can do on our behalf and through us anyway, only when we turn ourselves to faith. Because what faith does is it aligns us and rests in God to do what only he can do anyway. It says, I am not capable, I am not able to accomplish these things on my own. It's the fact that they thought they could do their own thing and went their own direction that caused all of these priests and these people in the temple and the Israelites who are now being cursed, that's what set them up as they were not living by faith, they were living by self. And so he is saying here, live by faith. Have faith in God, connect yourself to God, stop doing your own thing solo so that we might participate and participate in what God is intending. Jesus goes on to explain the power of faith, verse 23. Truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea and does not doubt in his heart but believes that what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. He's essentially saying if you live by faith, These very things, these grandiose things that I would desire for you are the things that are going to happen. And although it might sound like it, Jesus here is not giving us a a formula for throwing mountains into the sea, okay? Nowhere does anybody ever throw a mountain into the sea. It's simply a very handy picture for him to use because he's there on the Mount of Olives, which is a mountain, and the Dead Sea is basically just down over there over the hill. And he says, if you'll live in this way, because we're right here, this is just for, you know, front of my mind, this mountain could be thrown over there into the, the sea. That's really what he's saying. It's about having faith in God to accomplish things in our lives that are otherwise impossible, but through faith, even, he says, the tallest of obstacles, the tallest one I can think of right now is this mountain we're standing on. Even that can be thrown into the See, it can be removed, the largest of our obstacles. And I'm guessing that there are probably some obstacles that you're facing in your life that seem that big, that seem that significant. Maybe a failing marriage. Maybe the fact that there's no marriage. Maybe some diagnosis. Maybe some financial troubles. Maybe a dead-end job that you find yourself stuck in. Whatever it is, Jesus says having faith in God can move you in the direction of seeing those mountains removed. And that sounds pretty good. But how do you live that out? Well, in faith, but also he goes on then. Verse 24 says, Therefore I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it and it will be yours. And whenever you stand praying, forgive if you have anything against anyone, so that your Father also who is in heaven may forgive you your trespasses. Jesus is pointing out the great power that there is in prayer. And that's absolutely true, but it's not to be understood to be some sort of blank check that we can just take and use and write for whatever selfish purposes we might desire. As much as it might seem so, becoming 
becoming Bruce Almighty, right? It is not a win. So that you might be able to man, uh, manipulate all circumstances in your favor, whatever they, that's not a win here, according to what he is saying. Just like faith is best expressed as a means to turning to God to lean on his power, so prayer is best expressed as a means of turning to God to lean on his purposes. It's the same thing. Here again, prayer is not a well that we're trying to fill up deeper and deeper so that we might be able to run off on our own and accomplish great things. Prayer is a connection that we have to God just like faith is a connection that we have to God. And it's only as we participate together and align ourselves together with the work that he wants to do, leaning into him to do the things that we cannot do ourselves that we are going to experience the power of faith or that we're going to experience the power of prayer. It's only in connection to him. Prayer is more than just asking. It's fellowship, it's communication, it's supplication, it's submission to God and his purposes. Faith isn't so that you can run off well, well understood or, or well expressed. It's not so that you can run off and impress God with how much faith you had that you could do all of those things apart from him. There's no win in that and prayer isn't either. Not that you're so strong as a prayer that you can pray all these things that you want and they're gonna happen whether God helps you or not. It's a matter of falling under his purposes and his will. However as powerful as prayer is, there's also a very powerful obstacle that threatens the fellowship and harmony that we would have. He talks about here in verse 25, says it's a lack of forgiveness toward others. That can shut off the flow of God's grace in your life. That's right, lack of forgiveness. For all of the things that he might have mentioned here, he says a lack of forgiveness toward others can shut down the flow of God's grace. This is another area where it's easy to judge others by a different standard than which we judge ourselves. When we're wronged, we want justice. We want something to happen to that other person or we might even turn our back on them until they appropriately come with appropriate remorse to seek our favor again. But when we do something, we're ready for grace. We operate by a different standard. We want a pass. It's a recipe for keeping you separated from others. And according to verse 25, it's a recipe for keeping you separated from God when we refuse to forgive. And it could be that you're floundering in a relationship with God today because you're floundering in a relationship with somebody else because there's forgiveness that hasn't been extended or hasn't been sought or hasn't been worked toward. And that's the thing that is ultimately keeping you from God. We need to learn what is necessary to run to God and to find the way to forgiveness so that we wouldn't be on the outs as it were with God. That might be where you are. The resolute Jesus knows what he's after. He's cooperating with the plans and the purposes of the Father. That has him entering into Jerusalem on a donkey, kicking off a week that is going to end on a cross. It has Jesus resolutely coming in, working on behalf of those who need to walk more closely with the Father. He's, he's confronting, he's getting rid of the status quo 
On top of that, we find him giving us the key to what it means and what is necessary for us to walk in closer harmony and fellowship with God. And that is this idea of faith. Your goal is not to try to get yourself to the place where you have so much faith, you can just exercise it. And if God kicks in or not, it doesn't really matter because I've got enough faith to get there all on my own. Same thing with prayer. Not that I have so much confidence in prayer that I don't really need God to help me here. But all of this is, as we are saying, I just want to reiterate it again because this is central. The most powerful person of faith the most powerful person of prayer is the one who recognizes how weak they are and falls in to God so that he might do what he can only do anyway. Your goal is fellowship with God. It's unity with God. He says, how can I find my way to this fellowship you desire? He says, have faith in God. So as we move our way beyond this moment, as we move our way toward Good Friday, as we move our way toward Easter, this is the challenge that is upon us. Not that we might be so bolstered in our faith because of all of these things that have happened, but rather that we might be humbled so that we'd rest in him to do what only he can do anyway. And that's the prayer that I would have you to pray, is, Lord, grant me faith. Not faith in myself, but faith in you. When you're asking yourself, how do I get past the place where I'm all leaves and no fruit? The answer is, throw yourselves in the arms of God. Have faith in God, not in your own abilities, in his abilities and watch what he can do. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for Jesus. We thank you for how resolute he was as he comes into Jerusalem, not just there to receive praise, to be lifted up, how easy, how tempting it might have been for us to just receive it all and, and to soak it all in and, and to make it all about us being lifted up and glorified. That's not what Jesus was about. He wanted to see people walk in conformity with your purposes and with your will. He wanted people to experience the fullness of what you had for them and he knew that it required purging the status quo. Father, I just pray for all of us that we too would do an honest evaluation of what is going on inside our lives, where there's a status quo, where we're going through the motions, where we show up, which is awesome, but it's really a lot of leaves and very little fruit. Lord, I pray that as you look into the temple of our hearts, that you wouldn't see fruitlessness, that you wouldn't see someone who is simply operating according to a status quo or going through motions or doing what we've always done, 
which looks good, but it lacks substance. Lord, in this season, this holy season, we pray that we would emerge as people who are more connected to your purposes, more connected to you in faith than ever before. Lord, may we rest in you to do what only you can do anyway and look forward to experiencing the blessing in it that goes beyond anything we've ever experienced before. We pray toward that end now. In the name of Jesus, amen.